I'm not sure what the Sunday School are doing this morning, but this morning we are going to travel together through a storm at sea. Or more accurately, we're going to watch and listen as the Apostle Paul travels through a storm at sea. The passage we're going to look at describes this storm in great detail. Apparently, this is one of the best accounts of a storm in all of ancient history. But we know that as Luke writes the book of Acts, he is not just interested in giving us historical details for their own sake. Luke is interested in teaching us about God. And so before we launch into this storm with Paul, we have to ask, why has Luke included this? I think we can begin to answer that question if we remember what we've been seeing in recent weeks. We've said the last quarter of the book of Acts is about Christianity on trial. In the last chapters, Paul has been defending his faith in front of kings and rulers. And we've seen God at work in those situations to move his plan forward. Back in chapter 23, while Paul was in a prison cell in Jerusalem, God said to him, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Then in chapter 26, we saw how God used the Roman legal system to get the Romans to take Paul to Rome. Prison walls and Roman governors are no barrier to Paul's God. That's the message. And now Luke turns to another question. If the Romans can't interfere with God's plans for Paul, what about the forces of nature? What about the raw, inconvenient circumstances of life? Is Paul's God also God of those things? Is he Lord of all creation? And as soon as I put that up on the screen, you might say, well, I already know the answer to that. Maybe so. But this story is going to show us something else. It's going to show us what it looks like to trust God in the worst storm of your life. When the situation you're in seems to be utterly beyond hope. We're going to see what it looks like to live out your belief that our God is Lord of all creation. If you haven't already found it in your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 27. It's page 1124 in the church Bibles. Last time we looked at Acts, we saw Paul appealing to Caesar. He realized he wasn't going to get justice where he was, in front of the local governor, and so he asked to present his case before the highest Roman authority. In order to do that, of course, since he's still a prisoner, he has to be escorted to Rome by Roman soldiers. So we pick up at chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. 
Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we arrived at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the coast of Lassia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the feast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Here we see Paul being carried into trouble. The ship Paul is on is not a prison ship. We'll learn later that the main cargo was grain. And that explains why Paul's friends, Luke and Aristarchus, are able to travel with him. They simply pay their fares and get on the same ship. It's important for us to realize that sea travel was pretty dangerous at this time. So rather than taking a straight course across the open sea, the normal strategy was for the ship to hug the shoreline as much as possible. That way it could pull into a bay if the sea started to get rough. And here is the course that our ship follows. All the way up to this point to a place called Fair Havens. But you can see that beyond this point, if they are going to get to Rome, they do have to cross a big stretch of open sea. There's not really anything they can do to avoid that. And at this point, Luke gives us an important piece of information in verse 9. Sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the fast. The background to this is that sea travel was not a year-round thing. It was seasonal. Ships didn't sail during the period from November to February. The sea was just too dangerous. But we know the date at this point is somewhere during September or October. We know that because that's when the fast took place. That's a reference to the annual Jewish Day of Atonement. So at this point, we are not during the months when it's too dangerous to sail, but it is right on the border of those months. So it is still a dangerous time to be sailing. That's obvious from the journey up to this point. It's been very difficult even to get this far. 
So we might say that time-wise, we're in the orange zone at this point. Not quite in the red, but definitely not in the green. And certainly a wise time to stop. And by this time, Paul himself is a very experienced sea traveler. Scholars tell us he has already sailed over 3,000 miles on his various missionary journeys. And he gives some wise advice in verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Paul is arguing that they should sit out the winter break in this harbor at Fair Havens. But his advice is ignored. The decision is made to push on to Phoenix, which should have been just a day's journey, and then sit out the winter. Paul's advice has not been followed, and he is being carried into trouble, and he can do nothing about it. He's a prisoner. He is a victim of the foolish decision made by those around him. Look at verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sartus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the man had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Here we see Paul trusting God's word in the face of all indications to the contrary. If you've ever seen the film A Perfect Storm, you can probably picture the situation here. Imagine the ship sliding vertically down the waves. And Luke is very clear about the mood on board in verse 20. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. All except Paul. No doubt Paul has to scream to be heard here. 
But that just makes his words all the more remarkable. First, he says or screams to the others in verse 21, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. Paul is not saying, I told you so. His point is, I was right before, wasn't I? So this time, please listen to me. And what he says next is very specific in verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Those words are contrary to every indication at this point. So why is Paul so confident? His confidence comes from God's word. Just as God spoke to Paul back in the prison cell in Jerusalem, so now God has repeated that same word in verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul can feel the salt biting into his face, just like everyone else. He's probably falling off his feet every two seconds, just like everyone else. He can probably hear the timber cracking under his feet, just like everyone else. But unlike everyone else, Paul puts his trust in God's word. Verse 25, keep up your courage, man, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul has his eyes wide open. He knows it's not going to be a smooth ride. But he believes it is going to be a safe ride because he believes God's word. A few minutes ago, whenever the words Lord of all creation appeared behind me on the screen, I would guess that all of us said to ourselves, yeah, I know that. But it's not so important whether we can say this when we're sitting here in church. The important thing is, can we say it when we're actually in the storm? And I'm using storm now in the widest sense. When your plans for your life are collapsing around your ears. When the foolish decisions of other people have caused a crisis for you. When the normal supports of life are swept away from me. In that situation... Can I still say, yes, my God is Lord of all creation? And even more than just saying it, can I demonstrate it? Can I cling to hope in Him when there are no visible reasons for hope? When all of the indications say, God is not up to this one. Or God has left it too late on this one. Things have gone beyond the point where God can prove himself faithful to me. Paul's situation seems to be one of those situations. The crew, the professionals in this situation, have given up all hope. But look again at Paul's logic here. 
His logic goes like this. God has told me I must go to Rome. I'm not in Rome yet, so I'm safe. I cannot die before I get to Rome. No matter how many of these boards might give way under my feet. That is the raw, white-knuckle logic of trust in God's Word. Now here, Paul received a direct word from God. You and I are unlikely to have that experience. We might, but God's usual way of speaking to us today is through his written word. So the method of communication might be different for you and me. But we can use exactly the same logic as Paul did. Romans chapter 8 says this. It was read to us earlier. And remember, these words are written by Paul. So what we're about to read is not just theory for Paul. He has tested this in practice. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer to that question comes a few lines later. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice again that Paul is realistic. He doesn't deny that this long list of troubles and storms can hit us. They can throw us off our feet. They can give us a bloody nose or two. Paul is not denying that we'll experience loss and trauma in our lives. Here in our passage, he tells his shipmates, we are going to be shipwrecked. The sea is not going to miraculously go still all of a sudden. The ship is going to be destroyed by this storm. But we will not be destroyed. And that is his point in Romans 8. We might actually lose everything. The storms that hit us might actually strip us bare but they will not separate us from the love of God. That is the one thing they cannot strip from us. We have God's word on that. So the challenge for you and me is this. And if any of us aren't facing this challenge right now, we will face it at some point. The challenge is this. Will we trust this word from God even in the face of all indications to the contrary. When it seems certain to us that God has been looking the wrong way in our situation, that he's allowed trouble to sneak in while he was being distracted by something else, when all the indications are that God has left it too late in our case, will we trust his word anyway? 
Or will we deny God and give up hope in him? And giving up hope in God doesn't always mean that we deny the faith and walk away from church. There are men and women sitting in churches today who gave up hope in God decades ago. Some crushing situation came into their life and they decided God had failed them. He didn't come through for them when he ought to have come through. Somebody died or somebody left or some injustice happened to them. And they gave up their confidence in God. But they still sit in church every week. They still go through the motions of Christianity. Maybe for the sake of their family or their friends. But their hope in God is dead. Maybe you're one of those people. If you are, I won't know the circumstances that have caused you to lose hope. But I ask you to look at Paul's words. Whatever the circumstances were, they are covered on Paul's list. You have not been separated from the love of God in Christ. He has not failed you. And it's time today to renew your hope in him. Whatever you've lost or whatever you might be losing at the moment, And I'm not belittling what you've lost or what you're losing. But whatever it is, you still have everything God promised you. He promised you himself. Well, what we see next is something that flies in the face of popular wisdom today. We see that the one who trusts God has the biggest impact for good. That is not a popular idea today. Increasingly, Christians are being portrayed as a bit sinister, a bit of a threat to society. But that is contradicted by what we see here. Beginning of verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread 
and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Many broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. What we've seen is that during the course of this voyage, Paul has emerged as the leader. Back in verse 11, when this part of the voyage was being discussed, Paul's advice was ignored. But now everyone can see that his advice was wise. They've also seen what kind of man he is. His confidence, they have seen, is not the confidence of a lunatic. It's not the confidence of someone who denies reality. Now, Paul is as practical as you can get. His confidence is based on someone bigger and stronger than himself. And that confidence sets Paul free to lead wisely and practically and with sound common sense. So when the sailors try to escape in the lifeboat, and that's an indication of how hopeless they think the situation is, when they're trying to escape, Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, you need to keep these guys on board. We need their skills if we're going to get out of this situation. And you'll notice the soldiers take Paul's advice this time. They sacrifice the lifeboat in order to keep the sailors. And then Paul convinces the crew and the passengers to eat. Whether it was through sheer terror or busyness or both, they have been neglecting to eat. But Paul convinces them they need to be physically prepared for the work of getting themselves to land. And again, they take his advice. Paul hasn't sat in the corner and tried to stay aloof from this situation that they're all in. He's entered into it, and he has shown helpful common sense. And so he has gained influence with these pagan sailors and soldiers. And even as he pulls his weight and gets practically involved, Paul leaves these people in no doubt who he's looking to for his help and provision. We're told in verse 35 that as he distributes food, he pauses first to give thanks to God in front of them all. Paul is demonstrating that the one who trusts God has the biggest impact for good. When everyone else is panicking and scrambling to save their own skin, the man or woman who trusts in God is free to help others and lead with a clear head rather than trampling on others and having a head that's consumed with self-preservation. As I said, that is not the popular picture of the man or woman who trusts God. But the evidence bears it out. Not just here with Paul, but throughout history. Think, for example, of Abraham Lincoln. I haven't seen the new film about Lincoln, but whatever picture that Hollywood might give us of Abraham Lincoln, the facts show us a man who was able to do the greatest good as a leader at the point when he became most clear in his trust in God. 
You may have heard the expression that those who are heavenly minded are of no earthly use. But the reality is this. Those who are truly heavenly minded are of the most earthly use. If you want to make a difference for good in this world, if you want to help people, then start by putting your trust in God. Those who genuinely do the greatest good are those with the greatest trust in God. The more we trust him, the less we'll worry about ourselves. And then we'll be more help to others. Well, Luke goes on to tell us how everyone in the ship did finally reach land in safety. The ship was lost, but everyone made it to land. Some of them swimming, if they could. Some of them clinging to planks and other bits of the ship. Luke tells us how they arrived on the island of Malta. And there we see Paul continuing to do good in very practical ways. Helping his shipmates on the beach and helping the people of the island. But look how the journey ends, picking up down in chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, that's three months on the island of Malta, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. In one sense, the key point of these final verses is that Paul did finally arrive safely in Rome. But Luke includes a couple of details here that underline the main point of our whole passage. Luke draws our attention to the true God of protection and deliverance. Verse 11 tells us the ship that they board on Malta was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. In pagan religion, Castor and Pollux were the sons of Zeus. They were known as savior gods, and they're known today as the astral sign Gemini. They were specifically the gods of sailors. So it would have been Castor and Pollux the sailors were crying out to when they got into trouble at sea. But as we've seen very, very clearly, Castor and Pollux had nothing to offer. Those who trusted in them had no hope. But notice what we read in verse 15. As Paul arrives safely in Rome, and as he's welcomed on the way by some Christian brothers, we're told that Paul thanked God and was encouraged. 
And I'm quite sure Paul is not only thanking God for these brothers who've walked a few miles to meet him. He's thanking God that God has kept his promises through the whole journey. Including the winter break from sailing while they were waiting on Malta, this trip from Caesarea to Rome has taken well over four months. And those four months have been a testimony to the fact that Paul's God is the true God. Paul's God is the one who can be trusted, who keeps his promises, who has sovereign power, and who is worthy, finally, of thanks. In contrast, every other object of our worship is just as useless as Castor and Pollux. Every other object of trust is unworthy of our trust. They will all let us down. Only Paul's God can deliver and will deliver on his promises. Only Paul's God is big enough for every situation and every crisis. So let's ask God to renew and deepen our trust in him. Let's ask him to help us live out that trust in all situations. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the greatest sign of God's trustworthiness. God promised us a Savior. Then he sent us a Savior. And nothing can separate us from his love. We're going to praise him as we sing, Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head.